Pastor uh, Shane mentioned this book, Out of the Blues. Uh, the uh, title of tonight, I notice on the uh, flyer, is Down But Not Out, which is another book uh, that I wrote. And uh, I would encourage you to pick that up. Many of the things I'll be talking about tonight will be in the book Down But Not Out, but a lot more information will be in Out of the Blues, which uh, the uh, subtitle is Dealing with the Blues of Depression and Loneliness. And if you've had any exposure to the books that I've written, and I know that some of you have because you've already talked to me about uh, the uh, way God has used the books, I would uh, just uh, remind you that in the books that I've written, I've written them to be used in counseling. Uh, I was with counselees that I had. I'd look around for material that could be used in dealing with the problems that various people had when they came. And many times I couldn't find the biblical material, and so I put together uh, several homework manuals, Homework Manual for Biblical Living, Volume 1, Homework Manual for Biblical Living, Volume 2, and then I put together one that's Volume 3 also, and then Strengthening Your Marriage, of course, is um, for marriage situations, and uh, Sweethearts for a Lifetime, uh, is uh, the most re- recent marriage book that I've written. And uh, actually, we're talking to somebody here, and they were saying about using Strengthening Your Marriage. Uh, I am, uh, have used Strengthening Your Marriage, of course, but recently, uh, the book that I use most frequently in terms of marriage counseling is really Sweethearts for a Lifetime, where uh, we walk people through a biblical perspective on marriage, and there's a lot of inventories in there which helps you to gather data, and there are also a lot of uh, questions which uh, require them to be uh, in discussion, and then you bring it together in the counseling session, and uh, basically we just, uh, we've been working with a doctor and his wife recently, and it's just been beautiful to see how most of the work is done outside of the counseling hour. It's done as they do their homework. I'm, I've always been convinced in the importance of homework, but I'm even more convinced if that's possible now because I've seen the difference. When people do their homework, if it's the right kind of homework, uh, God uses that to change them. If they won't do the homework, um, uh, I frankly am not very excited about even counseling them because I think it's not the uh, counseling hour is not the magic hour it's every day of the week and I call them to commitment to commit themselves to at least give if they've got serious problems to at least commit themselves to doing an hour of homework every day until the Lord uh, changes the situation and if they're unwilling to put in the time Uh, then uh, we're not going to see much progress with them. At any rate, that's not the main thing we're here to talk about tonight. Uh, We're here to talk about uh, the uh, matter of uh, depression. 
Now, I remember hearing about a certain man who was having difficulties with his wife. Uh, she was very depressed, and so he made an appointment for her, took her to see a psychiatrist. She sat down in the uh, psychiatrist's office. The psychiatrist came over. He sat down beside her. He, put, he looked into her face. He put his arm around her, and uh, he uh, gave her a kiss on the cheek. And after he had done that, uh, she just beamed. Well, after um, he had gone through that little uh, experience with her, he went over and sat down in his chair. And then he said to the man, did you see what happened when I came over and sat down beside her? Did you see what happened when I put my arm around her and gave her a squeeze? Did you see what happened when I looked into her eyes and I gave her a kiss? And the man said, uh, yes. And the psychiatrist said, well, that's what she needs at least three times a week. And the man said, okay, well, I'll bring her in on Tuesday and Thursday. (laughs) But I can't bring her in on Saturday because that's my golf day. (laughs) Now, that woman had a very common problem, the problem of depression. Depression, we might say, is truly a democratic disorder. It strikes regardless of race, creed, or national origin. It affects anyone from lawyers to laymen, young and old, rich and poor. It's said that at any one time, at least 10% of the population of the United States of America uh, is suffering from depression. Depression knows no age barrier. I've known of young people who were very active in school, made good grades, played on the high school football, basketball team, were doing very well, and yet they were experiencing depression. It's true that people of every age, every social class, every educational and ethnic background, economic and marital status, religious commitment and affiliation, gender and career orientation, experience depression. So as I teach on the subject of depression tonight, I do so with the conviction that I'm teaching about a problem that most of you have had at one time, or another way of looking at it is that you know somebody who's had that problem. And if you haven't yet experienced it, just wait, because your day is coming. And so given the commonality of this depression reality, we need to know how to deal with it from God's perspective. For your own benefit and for the sake of helping others, you should know something about how to understand and solve this problem. And to assist you in this regard, I want to first of all seek to give you a biblical perspective on what depression is. I want to define and describe depression. And then second, I want to discuss how it develops, the development of depression. And after that, I'm going to move on, if we have time tonight, to uh, talk to you about biblical strategies for resolving the problem itself. In other words, I want to talk about the defeat of depression. So we'll do the three Ds of depression, the definition of depression, the development of depression, and the defeat of depression. And all of that, of course, is in my book, Out of the Blues. Now, I begin our discussion by making several clarifying statements. In this brief study, we're not going to be able to do a comprehensive study of the subject of depression. You can't do that in one evening. 
but I will attempt to do a brief biblical study of the subject that I hope will be helpful to you in your own life and in your attempts to help others who may be experiencing the common problem of depression. In this study, we're not going to be talking about the kind of depression that's directly related to some physical disease or malfunction. That's not where we're going to focus. If uh, the someone is depressed and it uh, can be demonstrated that they have some kind of physical problem, most, at least Christian doctors who are committed to biblical counseling would say th- that if it's a physical problem, then it should be labeled with a physical label and it shouldn't be called depression. For example, Dr. Bob Smith, who has a book which is called The Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference, which is a book that I believe anyone who's involved in counseling uh, should have. In that book, he lists many physical problems that may cause depression. One of them, Alzheimer's disease, another Parkinson's disease, certain cancers. And in these cases where there can be a demonstrable physical problem identified, uh, Dr. Bob Smith and other Christian physicians say that it should not be called depression. Instead, it should be called by whatever physical problem somebody has. And they should have a physical exam And if it demonstrates the presence of a physical ailment, there should be treatment with legitimate remedies which will constitute a large part of the solution to the feelings of depression. I was uh, involved in a situation some time ago where um, the person was experiencing depression. They had just gotten married not too long before that. She had just gotten married. And uh, she... uh, uh, she said she really was uh, glad she was married. She said she had a wonderful husband, and here she was depressed. And one of the things that we discovered was that she was taking a particular kind of birth control pill, which, according to the physician's desk reference, in some instances may cause depression. Well, we sent her back to the doctor. The doctor changed the uh, drug that she was taking uh, for uh, uh, pregnancy uh, uh, prevention, and uh, the depression was gone. So if it's uh, something physical, uh, then, of course, you deal with it from the physical perspective. But in most cases, according to those who are involved in uh, the physical area, in the medical area, uh, they say in most cases, at least 80% of the cases when people come to you um, saying that they are depressed, it won't be something is being caused by a physical or medical uh, problem. Uh, As I say, I'd really encourage you to get Bob Smith's book, uh, The Christian Counselor's Medical Desk Reference, and there's some excellent material in there about a lot of issues. Now, as we begin to discuss this subject, I think it's important for us to remember that the word depression is really a broad term that is used to describe a variety of emotional experiences. Uh, Somebody is despondent, they say they're depressed. Somebody's dejected, they're depressed. Somebody's unhappy, they're depressed. Somebody's sad, they're depressed. And so there's a whole range of emotional experiences that come under the rubric of depression. 
Now, I believe we can divide the experience of depression biblically into three main categories. In the Bible, we have some examples of what I will call mild depression, which might be labeled disappointment or discouragement or sadness, which is a condition that um, all of us at one time or another will experience. I think even Jesus experienced some disappointment in John chapter 6, where uh, he had spoken to the people about being the bread of life and saying that he that eats of this bread uh, will never really hunger. At that point, many of his professed disciples went back and they walked no more with him. That's what the Bible says. They said, this is a hard saying. And who can hear it? At that point, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Will you also go away? And I think there was a, a bit of uh, discouragement or uh, some kind of disappointment. There's nothing sinful at times of being disappointed if, unless you allow that disappointment to rule you and to control you. In John chapter 11, we read of uh, Jesus with Mary... It says that when he saw Mary, he was deeply troubled in his spirit. There was a kind of sadness there. It was real. And Jesus, we're told, wept with her. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about uh, being sorrowful. He was experiencing a form of disappointment. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13, he said, We sorrow, but we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. And so there was, it's appropriate if we have a, some, a loved one who dies, it's appropriate for us to experience some kind of sadness as long as we do not allow that sadness to control us or destroy our hope. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul said that he was depressed. That's the words that, that he uses at that point. He says, God who comforts the depressed comforted us and he's saying i needed comfort at that particular point and he comforted us by the coming of titus who came with some good news and encouraged him and so there is a kind of uh, uh, what people would call depression which is mild depression it doesn't control them it doesn't rule them it doesn't cause them to stop doing things that they should be doing it doesn't encourage them to do things that they shouldn't be doing. Secondly, in the Bible, we have some examples of what we might call moderate depression. And this is found in passages such as Psalm 73, where the psalmist said, As for me, my feet came close to stumbling. Now notice, it says, my feet came close to stumbling. He didn't stumble, but his feet came close to to stumbling. And he says, um, my steps had almost slipped. They didn't really slip, but they almost slipped. And he says, I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so there's a moderate kind of depression that the psalmist was experiencing. And in Lamentation chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, Jeremiah, who wrote Lamentation, said, I am the man who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, 
He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones and on and on through the rest of those verses through 19, verse 19. So there is a kind of depression, but in this instance, as you read on, uh, he says uh, uh, that uh, he still has some hope. Uh, he's not thrown in the towel. He's not given up. Uh, but his depression certainly goes beyond the mild depression that we uh, saw with Paul in Second Corinthians chapter 7 and in other passages. But there's a moderate kind of depression. And I think we have an example of this moderate kind of depression where they experience a, a down feeling, uh, but they're not allowing that down feeling to rule their lives and to cause them to throw in the towel and to give up entirely and to stop doing things they ought to be doing. He says, my soul thirsts for God. My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. But as you read on, you find out that at this point, the psalmist is experiencing some kind of discouragement which goes beyond the mild, uh, mild category. But in the Bible, you not only find examples of mild depression and moderate depression, you also find examples of severe depression. In John 16 and verse 6, I think Jesus is describing what it's like to be severely depressed. He says, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, when the Bible talks about the filling of the Spirit, it means that the Spirit of God is controlling you. And when Jesus said that sorrow has filled your heart... He's saying that your sorrow is controlling you. It's Lord in your life. It's ruling your life. And I think we see also an example of severe depression in uh, Psalm 32, where David says that when I kept silent, my body wasted away. It was affecting him physically, whether that was because he lost his appetite or whether it was caused by some other physical problem. There was something happening in, in David as far as his loss of weight. His body was wasting away. And that's a characteristic of somebody who is severely depressed. Either they lose weight or else they find their satisfaction only in eating and they uh, gain weight inordinately. And he talks about groaning all day long. Not just... Uh, uh, for part of the day, but he groans all day long. And then he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality, my injury, my energy was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. And so he's experiencing at this point a severe depression. And then you move over to Psalm 38, and the psalmist again, which is a psalm of David, this is another instance where David experienced severe depression. He says, Your arrows have sunk deep into me. Your hand has pressed down on me. 
There's no soundness in my flesh. In other words, he had what uh, some people today uh, say they have in terms of... uh, uh, in terms of chronic fatigue. There's no soundness in my flesh. You touch me here, it hurts. You touch me here, it hurts. And all over, I hurt. There's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones. Uh, he had severe uh, cases of uh, pain in his, jo- in his bones. And he says that it's because of his sin. And my iniquities are gone over my head as a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul. And they fester because of my folly. I'm bent over and I greatly bow down. That is a period, that is a picture of someone who is severely depressed. It uh, uh, is not just uh, that they're slowed down, uh, they're wiped out. My loins are filled with burning. Uh, There were physical uh, pain that he had. There's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed, I'm loud, uh, badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart, and so forth. And of course we have uh, another example of severe depression in the case of Elijah, where Elijah uh, was uh, at the point where he wanted to die. He wanted to die. And that's severe depression. Somebody who is, who is uh, experiencing severe depression often is a person who has suicidal ideations. As suicidal thoughts, what's the point of living? I would just like to die. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, you have some words from the Apostle Paul uh, that describe what a severely uh, depressed person is experiencing. This is what he's saying. He says in that passage that he's afflicted in every way. There's no way in which I'm not afflicted. And then he goes on to describe his depression or what is a severe depression with four words. He said, I'm troubled, I'm afflicted, I'm hard-pressed, I'm squeezed, I'm oppressed, and he's distressed, he's put in a narrow space, but Paul says, even though uh, these things have come upon me, I'm afflicted in every way, he says, yet I am not uh, cast down, I'm not knocked out. So he, he, he's, on the one hand, he's describing what it means to be severely depressed, And on the other hand, he's saying that he's not severely depressed. Then he says, I'm persecuted. And that's the way somebody who's severely depressed, they think they're persecuted, they're pursued, they're hunted down, they're chased down. Nobody cares, nobody is interested in me, and they feel forsaken, abandoned, and deserted. That's severe depression. And then he goes on to talk about being cast down, and struck down, and uh, thrown down. Destroyed, he uses the word destroyed or ruined or perished. That's severe depression. And then he goes on, and the fourth a little uh, uh, group of words that he uses, he says, I'm perplexed. I'm confused. And somebody who's severely depressed is often very severely confused. And then he says, but I'm not in despair. Now, someone who's severely depressed is is in despair, and it's the Greek word exapareo, and when you take that Greek word apart, ex means without, a means any, and pareo is, we know what pareo is, it's a word we use porous. There's a certain kind of cheesecloth that is porous, you can pour something through it. 
And Paul says, I'm not without any way through. In other words, that's the opposite of somebody who's severe. There's no hope. A severely depressed person uh, sees everything black and uh, there's absolutely no hope. Now, there's a summary statement about what depression is and does. And you pull it together. Depression does affect our emotions. And so in that sense, it is an emotional disorder. It may affect us physically. And therefore, it may be a physical disorder. And then it does affect people uh, behaviorally. There are things that they used to do, they stopped doing. Uh, they, uh, and I, as I've worked with severely depressed people, uh, they've gone to bed, they stay in bed, they don't brush their teeth anymore, they don't, get, they don't take care of themselves uh, physically. Uh, they just stop behaving as a uh, uh, normal person would behave. It does affect our behavior. You don't feel like doing anything, so you don't do it. You allow your feelings uh, to control you. And it does affect them cognitively. And therefore, it's a conceptual disorder uh, because the way they're thinking, there is a negative way of thinking about everything, almost everything. And it's, it's often a historical disorder uh, people who become severely depressed are usually people who have mishandled their previous episodes of mild depression and moderate depression. There's a historical aspect. They mishandle mild depression wrongly, moderate depression wrongly, and it becomes uh, a severe depression for them. Here's what Dr. Bob Smith says about uh, the way uh, that depression affects people. He says, depression is one of the conditions with much halo data. Halo data are symptoms or manifestations of depression that can be physically observed. The first place to look is the most obvious, the counselee's face. His face literally oozes a what's-the-use attitude. His eyelids tend to droop. The corners of his mouth are turned down and seem to pull the entire facial expression down with him. His face is long, grim, and sad. He appears listless and generally expresses an air of helplessness or hopelessness. Written on his face is what's going on inside of him. All other visual and auditory clues or data follow the same pattern. His voice is often quiet. His speech tends to be slow. His voice is a uh, monotone and he uses little or no expression. As he talks, tears may come to his eyes. He may not look at the counselor. He may look at the floor instead. His hand pressed limply in his lap. He sits with a droop to his shoulders as though pushed down by the weight on his shoulders and the corners of his mouth. There's very little body motion as he talks. He walks slowly and at times almost shuffles. There's little life spring or bounce that shows some expenditure of energy. He is interested in doing what he does with as little effort as possible. This describes severe depression. All these things are not always present, but there will be varying degrees of some of the signs present in most severely depressed people. Occasionally, a severely depressed person displays the exact opposite signs. He is overactive, fidgety, and irritable. And he talks fast, but with disconnected speech. However, his physical symptoms are those of severe depression. The things that a severely depressed person complains of 
and the physical changes that are present in his body are identical to what is observed on the outside. He complains of having no pep or energy, and he's always tired. He doesn't sleep well because he either has difficulty falling asleep or else he awakens early. The latter is the most common complaint. They wake up early. Even when such a person does sleep, he awakens in the morning feeling as though he hasn't slept all night. Then he drags through the day fighting the fatigue and sleep, only to end up in bed that night again, unable to go to sleep. When he does, he typically spends it in restless sleep and awakens early and tired the next morning. He may have a sick headache in the morning and sore feet and a little backache in the evening. He has no appetite and food does not look good to him. He only eats because he knows it's necessary. He may have lost some weight. In association with this, he complains of constipation. His mouth is dry and he has a bad taste. He has lost interest in sex as well as other things that at one time were very important to him. The Lord made our bodies with automatic regulating systems controlling many of their functions. This system works something like the thermostat in our homes. When the temperature is low, the thermostat tells the furnace to put out more heat and the house warms up. When the temperature is high, the thermostat tells the furnace to quit putting out heat and so it stops. The thermostat for the autonomic, the automatic nervous system is the brain and the spinal cord. Certain needs within the body tells the automatic nervous system to make certain changes. Such changes as the activity of the intestinal tract, the amount of saliva produced by the mouth, sweating, the heart rate, and many, many others are controlled by the autonomic nervous system. Even though all the functions are automatic, the brain can affect them. By brain is meant the reactions the human being has to the various experiences in his daily life. These reactions affect the autonomic nervous system. This dynamic is what is going on in the depressed person. The intestinal tract slows down, producing loss of appetite, some nausea, indigestion, and constipation. Decreased food intake and decreased digestion produce weight loss. Decreased production by the salivary glands produces a dry mouth, which contributes to the bad taste. The entire metabolism slows down, producing a lack of pep and energy, a condition encouraged by a lack of sleep. Now, let me read for you one of the severely depressed people that I worked with. I had um, asked her to write out her description of what she was experiencing, and this is what she wrote. She said, depression is your own private little hell. Now, she's talking about severe depression here. Unknown to everyone but you and the Lord. It's very painful, the most devastating thing I've gone through. It makes you feel helpless and hopeless. The hurt at times is unbelievable, and apart from the grace of God, unbearable. It doesn't just go away with the passing of time. It's a real struggle, and lots of times you don't want to struggle anymore. Depression is very tiring, and almost everything you do takes a tremendous amount of effort, even just getting out of bed some days. Depression robs you of your energy, your affections, your happiness, your contentment, your reasoning, etc. It leaves you bewildered, 
confused, sad, angry, sometimes resentful, sometimes tearful, anxious and nervous, with your stomach in knots. It affects you physically. I lost 18 pounds without trying, and I had a terrible skin rash for almost three years. It affects you mentally. You think of nothing except how badly you feel and what a waste your life is. It affects you spiritually. Sometimes I've lost my assurance of salvation. I've felt forgotten and forsaken by God. It's difficult to pray, and when praying, it seems sometimes as if the prayer can't get past the ceiling. In depression, one sad thought leads to another, and in a very short period of time, you're in the depths of despair. Crying is a commonplace experience for me. Even now, as I write, I am crying, and it's very difficult to break this habit. Crying doesn't relieve the hurt. In fact, it makes it worse, and the result is more despair. Oh, God, she says, I hurt so badly. I've heard of people dying of a broken heart, but this is worse. I'm living with a broken heart. I am so alone. Please, God, please let me die. My heart is heavy almost all the time, and I forget what it feels like to be happy and content. I know we're not supposed to ask why, but I wish I had died 20 years ago when I had a serious medical problem. The last 20 years in between were not worth the last three years of suffering. Well, that is a description of a severely depressed person. Now, at this point, I want to move from a description of depression, and you'll find much of this in this book, Out of the Blues. You'll find that uh, description by that counselee of mine in uh, that particular book. And I think she stated what I've had over the 40 years of counseling in which I've been involved with depressed people. Let me say, I've often been asked uh, the question, what is the most frequent problem that people present to you when you're counseling them? Well, the most frequent problem is marriage and family problems. But right along with that is depression. Because there are just a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are experiencing severe depression, and if not severe depression, at least moderate depression. And all of us at one time or another experience some mild depression as well. Well, so much for a description of depression. I want to discuss with you the development of depression. And I'll do this by looking at some specific biblical passages. One biblical perspective on the cause of depression that is taught by several passages is depression may be the result of unresolved sin and guilt. This was the case of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He, of course, uh, didn't do what God wanted him to do, and that's sin. And then he did that which uh, God didn't want him to do. He was angry, and then he killed his brother. And at that point, God comes, and and he says to him, if you do well, uh, your depression will be lifted. He's saying that you are experiencing depression because you're not doing well. He hadn't obeyed God. He allowed his anger to take control in his life, and he eventually ended up in really killing his brother. And so you have... Uh, God dealing with him, God rebuking him for his sin, and then uh, 
Cain refusing to listen to God, and he just uh, uh, shuts God out of his life. He has a conscience. God made us with a conscience, and his conscience is working, and God continues to deal with him until Cain comes to the place where he says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And he is experiencing at that point severe depression. But it all has to do, at least initially, with his uh, sin. Sins of omission and then sins of commission as well. You have another uh, example of this in David in Psalm 32. Uh, Psalm 32 is describing, of course, his uh, sin with Bathsheba. And then, in a sense, he was responsible for the death of Uriah because he had him put out right in the front of the battle line. And uh, uh, here is David, and when he, uh, he is a professing believer, uh, his, he has a conscience, and his conscience is convicting him. But David says that he kept silent about his sin, and when he did that, he didn't deal with his sin in a biblical way his body wasted away and all those other horrible things happened to him. Now, of course, Judas in the New Testament is experiencing this kind of depression. Judas sinned against God, sinned against the Lord Jesus. And at that particular point, uh, he knew that what he had done with, was wrong. He took the money he had been received and he threw it down. He didn't want it anymore. And then uh, rather than Dealing with his sin in a biblical way, he ended up committing suicide. John Bunyan understood the connection between our wrong behavior, our sin, and, and our uh, depression. As in chapter 1 of Pilgrim's Progress, you have Christian who is reading a book. He's convicted of sin. And at that particular point, he's weeping and he's trembling as a result of conviction of sin, but he refuses to confess his sin. He refuses to repent of his sin, and the result is he continues to experience uh, depression. In my counseling experience, I've worked with people. I work with uh, uh, people, women, for example, who have been uh, part of having an abortion, and later on they... Uh, they are convicted uh, that it's wrong, but they don't deal with it and come to God uh, in repentance. They don't turn to the cross of Christ for forgiveness. And the result is they experience severe depression as they uh, continue to put off uh, uh, repentance uh, and, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to show you a couple illustrative diagrams of how Romans 2.14, which says that God gives us a conscience that either accuses us or excuses us. Well, this is how it works in human experience. They sin, there's failure, there's disobedience. Uh, There are the accusations of conscience or other people. And the result of that is they don't uh, confess, they don't repent. Uh, There is guilt and there is stress that they experience. And then there is delayed repentance, which means more guilt and stress. And you see that in David's situation in Psalm 32. And then they experience depression, despair, 
and gloom. You have Cain, David, and Judas, who are examples of that kind. Uh, here's another uh, description of what happens. A person has personal standards or personal convictions. Uh, it may be that they're personal standards that they got from the Bible, or it may be personal standards they got from their home, from their mother, from their father, or from school, or from society. Uh, some of those may be biblical, some of them may, may not be, but they have these personal standards, and they violate these standards, and the result is their conscience bothers them, and they experience guilt, and they continue to violate their conscience. They don't confess, they don't repent, and the result is increased sense of guilt, uh, sadness, down feelings, discouragement, despondency, and depression. So, one possible, uh, you're wrong if you uh, say all depression is caused by exactly the same thing. No, you have examples of different uh, things that cause the depression in Scripture. One of them is a sin that is not dealt with in a biblical way. Secondly, and so if you're counseling them, you're going to want to find out if any of that is going on. You want to find out if there's anything like that in that person's life. And then a study of Scripture also indicates that thinking about a hard or unpleasant situation in a non-biblical way may play a big part in the development of depression. Certainly that was true of Elijah's depression. Elijah comes to the place in 1 Kings chapter 19 where he's ready to die. He says, I, I want to die. And one of the reasons that Elijah came to that place was he was in a hard situation. He thought that because of what happened in 1 Kings 18, which is, remember, he went to the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, he got wood there. He called the fire of God down. And God came down and he consumed the sacrifice. He consumed the wood. And at that particular play, time, Elijah thought that that was going to bring revival. That's what Elijah wanted. He wanted revival, which was a good thing in uh, Israel. But even that tremendous demonstration of the uh, power of God didn't bring revival. And at that point, uh, Jezebel who had threatened to kill him previously, still wanted to kill him. So nothing really had changed. See, Elijah thought at that point, this is going to do it. This is going to convert Jezebel and Ahab, and it's going to convert uh, uh, many of the other people. And it didn't happen that way. And so he responded to this unpleasant situation with depression. He goes out and lies down under... A, uh, juniper tree, and there he uh, just wants to sleep it off. This is also true of Moses in Numbers 11. Moses got depressed in Numbers 11, and one of the things was he says when uh, with the people, he says, I, I, you have laid this on me, Lord. He, he really gets somewhat upset with the Lord at that point, and he says, hey, uh, you are asking too much of me at this point. It was an unpleasant situation. The people were 
uh, criticizing him. They were saying, give us another leader. We want another leader. And at that point, Moses experiences anger and also some depression. And that was true, of course, of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Uh, He uh, is uh, at the point where he's close to stumbling. His steps had almost slipped. And then he says, For I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. There are no pains in their death. I've been trying to live for God, and here are these other people who don't care about it all, and they're not having the same problems that I'm having. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Their pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. They're violent people. Their eyes bulge from fatness. The imagination of their hearts runs riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high, which means that there's pride, arrogance that is characterizing these people. They've set their mouth against them. Oh, Lord, they're even getting uh, blaming you and blaspheming you. And uh, here I am. I haven't done that. And uh, I'm experiencing a lot of problems. And then he says um, that uh, he is tempted at that point. In vain, I've kept my heart pure. What in the world has been the, the purpose? Why, why, what is there? What am I getting out of, of the uh, righteousness and the godliness that I'm uh, experiencing and expressing? And I washed my hands in innocence. What was the point of me keeping my hands clean? I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And so here you have the psalmist experiencing a hard situation and he's thinking about this isn't fair this isn't right this isn't just and the result is he goes down in depression and that was true of the psalmist in psalm 42 Uh, he says why are you in despair my soul why have you become disturbed and he says uh, it's in a context where many are saying to him where's your god you say you're a believer you're devoted to god well, look at what's happening in your life. Where is your God? They're mocking him at that particular point. And then he goes on to say, I used to go along with the throng. This, For some reason, uh, the psalmist was not able to go with the people of God to worship services. Uh, it doesn't tell us why, but he wasn't. He says he remembers the times when he could. Maybe he's sick. We don't know. But... There were times when he could go to the worship services. In fact, at one point he's saying, I led them in procession. I was not only part of the crowd, I was a leader among the people of God. And he said, at that point I went with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and with a multitude of people who were keeping festival. But that's no longer true now. And as a result of this hard, unpleasant experience, he allows himself uh, to think in a negative way about his experiences, and the result is he experiences depression. Now, here are some diagrams as to how it happens. There's a disappointment. The disappointment becomes discouragement. The discouragement leads to disillusionment. What's the point of it all? I don't understand. I'm trying to live for God, and yet these things are still happening to me. And then it leads to depression, and then it leads to even thoughts of suicide or thoughts of death. Or here's another diagram that 
person experiences a tough situation, he responds sinfully with self-pity. It's not fair. It's not right. Feels sorry for himself. And then he experiences anger. It's just not fair that God would allow this to happen and that others would get off uh, in a, at a better way. And anger turns into bitterness, and therefore they fall down into the trash can of despair. And then another uh, diagram, you have the normal lifeline, and the person experiences rejection. Uh, he experiences overwhelming responsibility. It's too much. I can't handle it all. I'm being asked to do too much. He has dashed hopes, things that he were, was hoping would turn out well. They don't turn out well. Uh, there's a severe jolt, some, some hurt that comes to him, and then he become, or he becomes ashamed. And as a result of that, he begins to fret. He feels guilty. He withdraws. He becomes disgusted. He experiences anger. He becomes resentful. He becomes jealous of others, uh, such as uh, the psalmist did in Psalm 73. And then he feels guilty because he knows he shouldn't feel that way. And he begins to think negatively. He says, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. He sees no way out. He doesn't have any handle, a way of handling it. And he's bitter. He's preoccupied with his problem. And he's dominated by the problem. And the way back from at that point is extremely difficult. And after all of that, if it goes on long enough, uh, he begins to experience a death wish and even planning suicide. This is a danger point because potential, potential suicide when he realizes how far he has gone. Here the church must plug in the ministry of the saints. You may get depression, but don't let depression get you. Or another diagram which explains how people get depressed when they experience hard circumstances. There's an unpleasant, difficult circumstance, or it might be personal sin or failure. Cognitive interpretation in their minds, they interpret it. Uh, or evaluation, why is this happening? I don't think it's fair, it's not right, whatever. Uh, it shouldn't be happening to me. It's not happening to others. And uh, th as a result of that, there's a physiological response. Your body is affected. Uh, your lungs are affected. Your stomach is affected. Your bowels are affected. Uh, there's a physiological response. And then there's an awareness and experience of bad, unpleasant feelings. They just feel badly. And therefore, as a result of that, they take unbiblical actions. Uh, and to get out of their depression, they turn to drugs, they turn to sex, uh, they turn to uh, nastiness to other people, and there's a decreased functioning. They stop doing what they should be doing, and they're down in the trash can of uh, depression. Well, it's important to realize that it is not the unpleasant event that causes the depression. Rather, it's a person's interpretation of the event that causes the depression. You have the event, and then you have the interpretation, and the interpretation promotes the response that is given. The event does not cause the depression. It's the occasion, but not the cause of depression. It is the person's negative interpretation of the event that causes the depression. Uh, there are two people who may experience exactly the same thing. One goes down and the other doesn't. And the difference is the way they interpret that. 
uh, what that, the event that has happened to them. And that brings us to a third factor on the development of depression. Uh, we've seen that sometimes it's unconfessed and unrepented of sin. The conscience is working. Uh, sometimes it's a hard circumstance, unpleasant circumstance that they really don't uh, respond to properly, biblically. Uh, they interpret it wrongly and they experience depression. But a third factor on the development of depression uh, is that uh, depression may be the result of adopting an unbiblical belief system or unbiblical presuppositions and values. Now I'll explain that uh, to you so you understand. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10, uh, Paul um, tells us that he's been insulted, he's been persecuted, uh, that wherever he goes, uh, uh, there are, there's somebody following, following him around and accusing him, insulting him. Uh, I think the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 uh, is explained uh, later in the passage. He says that... that uh, uh, that uh, weakness, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties. Wherever he went, read the book of Acts. And wherever Paul went, uh, he had uh, people that were following him around, criticizing him. Even believers were uh, criticizing him. But in spite of that, he says, I am well content. All these things are happening, and yet he says, I'm content. He says, um, I'm content with weaknesses, physical weaknesses perhaps, or other kind of weaknesses. I'm content with insults. They're not bothering me. I'm content with distresses. I'm content with persecutions. I'm content with difficulties. So he has these problems, unpleasant events. Uh, certainly we would say they're unpleasant. But Paul says, in, in spite of all that, I'm content. I'm happy. I'm satisfied. No big deal. Now, why could Paul say that? It wasn't that the event was not serious. It wasn't the event was not unpleasant it was the fact that he really believed Romans 8:28 which says that God is able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose or in 2 Corinthians 4 Paul says that he's afflicted uh, but in every way uh, he says uh, that uh, uh, we are uh, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I'm not smashed to smithereens by all of these afflictions. Every way you talk about affliction, there's no way in which I haven't been afflicted. He said, I'm perplexed, which means that he doesn't understand. He can't figure it out. He doesn't know why God is allowing some of these things uh, to happen. It didn't make sense to him. But even though he didn't understand... And that's a question, you know, frequently when I've been counseling people, they say, if I just knew why it was happening, I wouldn't be upset. And Paul said, I didn't know why it was happening. But he said, I'm not despairing. 
And he goes on to say that I am constantly being delivered up to death for Jesus' sake, but I'm content. I'm always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, but that's okay. I'm still content. Why? Because he really believed God was sovereign, God was loving, and that things didn't just happen by chance. They happened because for some reason, even if Paul didn't understand what the reason was, God had a purpose in it all. Peter and John in Acts 5 and verse 41 rejoiced when they were suffering. Come on, guys. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. It wasn't the event. There was something else going on that caused them to rejoice and that they were suffering for Jesus' sake. God had a purpose in it all. And in Psalm 73... We're told that the psalmist also almost turned away from the Lord because he was envious, because he was jealous. And you see the same thing with the psalmist in Psalm 77, verses 2 through 10, and then with Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now when you go back to 1 Kings 19 and look at the belief system that is motivating and controlling Elijah you see that he had unbiblical values. You've got to remember that in 1 Kings 19, this is an anomaly in the life of Elijah. This is a snapshot, not a video of Elijah's life. Certainly what you have in 1 Kings 19 was not the norm as far as Elijah was concerned. In the main, Elijah was a great man of God who trusted and obeyed God. But at this point... And 1 Kings 19, he allowed himself to think unbiblically, and the result was he went down into severe depression. Why that happened at this time, even though it had never happened before, why he became depressed at this time, even though it had never happened before, we don't know. Perhaps it was because he had been so busy that he had neglected his time with the Lord. Perhaps he had been cut off from other believers who could encourage him. It would seem that this was true, and that he thought he was the only true believer in all the world. And he says that three times. The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, we should consider one another to stimulate unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together with the brethren as the manner of some is, but even more as you see a day approaching. And in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13, the Bible says if you want to keep from falling away from the Lord, you must be encouraged on a daily basis. You know, meet with other believers who will encourage you. Well, Elijah was cut off from other believers in 1 Kings 19. And perhaps this happened in 1 Kings 19 because he was physically weary and fatigued and thus more susceptible to think wrongly. Whatever the reason why on this occasion Elijah went down into despair, we can learn this from the account of Elijah, namely that if it happened to Elijah, who was certainly one of the greatest servants of God, 
we need to take heed that it doesn't happen to us. Now in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the Bible says, Don't love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, he says that if we are motivated... Now listen to me, this is important. If we are motivated by the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, in other words, if I think that what will make life worthwhile, what will make me happy, what will bring fulfillment is pleasure, comfort, safety, security, and I don't get pleasure, safety, and security, if someone or something stands in my way of getting pleasure, comfort, or security... And if I think there's no possibility of me ever getting what I want, then my emotional response may be anger, it may be worry, or it may be depression. And if I'm being motivated by the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the eyes thinks that what will make life worthwhile, what will make me happy, what will make me fulfilled is possessions. It may be beauty. It may be having things, having possession. And if I don't get the things that I think will make me happy, and if I think there is no possibility of ever getting those things, then my emotional response will be anger, worry, or even depression. Now, I hope you're hearing all this, because when you're counseling, these are things you have to find out. This is the data you have to gather. If a person says they're depressed, you have to find out if this is what they think will make life worthwhile. And they're not getting it. You see, they love the world. And the love of the world is not coming through. Or if I am being motivated by the pride of life, and the pride of life has to do with success, it has to do with respect, it has to do with control... If I think that what will make my life worthwhile is power, control, prestige, respect, and I don't get those things, if someone or something stands in my way of getting those things, if I think there's no possibility of me ever getting what I want, then my emotional response will be anger, worry, or it will be depression. And what's the problem? I have an unbiblical value system. I have an unbiblical standard by which I'm valuing what is really important in life. It means that if we're going to help depressed people to overcome their severe depression, we must explore with them this whole area of beliefs. This whole area of values and standards and motivations. We must seek to assess what they're not getting that they desperately want. And what they are getting that they don't want. 
we must help them to understand that there is a connection between their depression and their belief and their value system. Now here's what we're talking about in diagram form. Person has primary presuppositions or assumptions, standards, expectations, values, goals, motivations. And they're saying to be worthwhile, to be happy, to be content, I must have the approval of others. And when others don't approve of them, what they consider to be most valuable has been taken away from them. And the result will be depression. Because they're getting their joy, they're getting their satisfaction out of the approval of other people. That's their God. That's their idol. To be a good Christian, I must never, uh, whatever it might be, and then they do it. And... uh, As a result of that, they don't handle it properly and go to God for forgiveness. And the result is they experience depression. So you have primary presuppositions. All of us have them. Some of them we know. Some of them we would never admit. For me to be happy, I must have the respect of people. For me to be happy, I must have a husband who loves me, and he loves me in this way, and if he doesn't love me in this way, I can't be happy. Now, many women wouldn't say it that way, but that's really what's happening. And I'm not picking on women because that could be men who are saying the same thing. I must have a wife. That's what will make me happy, a wife who will always submit herself and always make me a priority in her life and so forth. Uh, That's what drives them. That's what they're getting their happiness out of. And when that doesn't happen, then they're miserable. It's not the event. It's their interpretation of the event that brings on the misery. They evaluate, they appraise, they have automatic thoughts about their behavior their performance and their situation. And it is since things are not working out the way I'd expected, God is failing, or I'm a horrible failure, and there's nothing I can do to change the situation. Things will never get better. They can't be improved. It's hopeless, and I have nothing to anticipate. And the result of that kind of thinking and that kind of response is unpleasant feelings and which include depression. Now here are some surefire ways to make yourself a depressed person. (laughs) And that is you engage in all or nothing thinking. It's either everything is perfect or everything is lousy. You practice overgeneralization. Somebody doesn't treat you with respect on one occasion. You interpret that everybody is out to get me. Or they constantly dwell on negative aspects. Or they disqualify or neutralize all the positive aspects. They do the binocular trick. 
And the binocular trick is, you know, if you pl- use binoculars, uh, you're supposed to see in the distance. But you turn it around, and you look at it the other way, and it makes everything smaller. You practice thinking the worst. You put your trust in your feelings. And that's you people who absolutely, if, if they feel badly, things are terrible. And they, they are constantly taking their emotional temperature. And they believe their emotions. And the emotions are the least valid way of evaluating anything. Because your feelings change on the basis of what you're thinking. Or a person who focuses exclusively on rules and regulations, on the threats and warnings of Scripture, and ignores the promises of Scripture. A person who ignores the love, the mercy, and grace of God and focuses exclusively on his holiness and wrath. That's going to lead to depression. A person who practices labeling, which, which means that you, you uh, put a label on something and you put a label that is derogatory and uh, uh, negative on something. It's horrible, it's terrible, and so forth. Or a person who assumes most of the responsibility for everything that needs to be done or that goes wrong. It's my fault. I just know it's my fault. Everything is my fault. person who develops and sustains a victim mentality. People are picking on me all the time. person who refrains from living a cross-centered life. Doesn't think about the cross of Christ. What the cross of Christ is all about and what the, who the cross of Christ is for. It's for sinners. And I'm a sinner. Just this morning as I was preaching in another church, I said, one of the things, as I grow older, I became a Christian at 16 in 1951. Now, you figure out how long that is. I think it's 62 years, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And I, I know it's six, 62 years. But uh, I said, you know, the older I get, the more I realize, though I've been a Christian for all those years, how much I fail God. I don't pray as I ought to pray. I don't read my Bible the way I ought to read my Bible. I don't witness the way that I ought to uh, witness. But there's a cross. And in spite of that, God loves me. And he forgives me. And I don't make light of my sin, but I'm just realistic about the fact that I'm selfish sometimes. And I'm proud sometimes. And I just have to live a cross-centered life. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief, says the Apostle Paul. And yet he didn't go down the tubes in despair. (laughs) And then uh, you make yourself depressed when you think about God's commands more than you think about God's promises and provisions. You ought to think about his commands, but if that's what you focus on and you forget about his promises and his provisions, and a person makes himself depressed when the 
Practice is thinking about what, what you have and are and can do in and by yourself. That's what you, you're dependent upon your own resources and not dependent about what and who you are and can do in Christ. So biblically speaking, we may conclude that depression may be caused by any one of three factors we've mentioned so far. But before we finish our discussion of the dynamics of depressive feelings, I want to mention one other possibility that may be suggested in 1 Kings 18 and 19. In this instance, Elijah had been involved in some serious physical activity. In chapter 18 and verse 45, he ran more than a marathon from the top of Mount Carmel to Jezreel. That's a distance of many miles. How long is a marathon? What is it? 26 miles. That's how far he ran. Have you ever seen anybody run that far <laughs> not come out of it tired? In chapter 17, he was by the brook Cherith. He wasn't uh, staying in the Hilton or Hyatt Hotel by the brook Cherith, and he was fed by ravens. <laughs> I don't imagine his diet was all that great for a period of time. In chapters 18 and 19, he had a serious battle with the numerous prophets of Baal. And the text also indicates that he was unable to get proper sleep or meals. In chapter 19 and verse 3, he's running again. In chapter 19 and verse 5, he, we're told that he slept under a juniper tree. And also that an angel came to feed him. And he ate, and guess what he did? He laid down again. He was really wiped out. Verse 7, he woke up, and he was told to eat. And then he went in the strength of that meal for 40 days and nights to Horeb, which was a distance of 150 miles in the south. Probably, when you have Elijah experiencing his depression, he's somewhat physically debilitated. And when he was so depressed at that point that he wanted to die. Now all of this may indicate that there may be some rare situations. Maybe 15-20% of the situations. There may be some rare situation in which a person's depressed mood may be connected to a physical or organic problem. Such as sleep loss. Reaction to certain medicines or drugs. Do you understand how important it is to get data? He that answers the matter before he hears it. It may be, uh, in rare cases, a chemical imbalance, a vitamin deficiency. It may be they've been uh, having a very poor diet. It may be uh, connected to some metabolic disease, such as Diabetes, where they're not controlling their blood sugar level. Epilepsy, hypoglycemia, or gout, or anemia. It may be they have a glandular disease, such as hypopituitarianism, or hypothyroidism. 
uh, I mentioned to some people that our uh, granddaughter was born without a thyroid. Unfortunately, they caught it at the time of her birth, and and so they uh, every day she has to take uh, a thyroid uh, medicine. But uh, let's say that uh, they didn't discover it, and here Carol Marie uh, is um, has no energy, has lethargic, is apathy, and she's not. She's um, She's a marvelous little girl who's friendly, and she is a public relations expert at three years of age. <laughs> she really is. And she's a pastor's daughter, which, of course, helps. She'll run up to the old, older women in the church and throw her arms around and say, Hi, Aunt Molly, it's so good to see you. At three years of age, she's doing that. But if she weren't taking the thyroid medicine, it'd probably be different. It may be a malfunction of hormones or neurotransmitters or norepinephrine or dopamine or uh, serotonin. Uh, you don't want to jump to that too, con- too quickly, but it certainly uh, is one thing that you'd want to have checked out. Uh, I've listed here 13 uh, of uh, factors that may indicate that there's a physical component and I'm not going to take the time to go through them because our time is almost gone but I have them listed in uh, my book Out of the Blues and if you want to check that out uh, you can find 13 uh, things may indicate a biological or physical component to depression but please uh, almost uh, every physician, medical body man that I've uh, studied uh, indicates that that will be true in 10 to 15 or perhaps 20% of the cases. In most cases, it won't be true. But to rule that out, sometimes it's helpful to get a thorough physical exam. And then they come back and they, I've had them, when I've had them do that, they come back and say that, There is nothing that they can find that is wrong physically. Then I know that I can work on it in terms of the way they think, the way they interpret things, and their values, and uh, their standards in life. Well, I'm sorry, folks, but it's ten minutes of nine. And, huh? Uh, What can I... What's that? Either that. <laughs> Problem is, it's, it's there's so much stuff that I wanted to um, wanted to deal with. Um, the uh, uh, you can get a lot of this in out of the blues in terms of the defeat of depression. I'll very quickly just summarize, and uh, then you can get the rest of it from the book. Um, Make sure, when you're dealing with a depressed person, that you gather data. Even if it's yourself. Use the things we've talked about, the 
the possible dynamics of depression. Um, is there something uh, that you're really convicted about? And then, uh, if if it's connect, if you're uh, there is something that is uh, uh, they are really uh, convicted about something they've done in the past or something they've not done in the past. Uh, then uh, you 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 got to help them to make a biblical confession and uh, repent in in a biblical way and continue to remind them of the grace of God, which, of course, doesn't encourage you to sin, but the grace of God is something that we depend upon because there's never a day in our lives when we're so good that we don't need the grace of God. And there's never a day in our lives when we're so bad that we're beyond the provision that the grace of God can make for us. And we need to deal with people in that particular way. Help them to understand what repentance is and help them to understand what uh, God's forgiveness involves as well. And then this matter of mishandling a hard situation or being influenced by unbiblical beliefs and values. Uh, Psalm 42 and 43, there are eight steps for overcoming this kind of depression, which are found in Psalm 42 and 43. I'll just mention them. Uh, First of all, you have to deal with God. Uh, They have to focus upon God, that God is able. The only proper and effective way to overcome depression is to be counseled or to counsel oneself in a God-centered way. I was speaking some time ago at a seminar in New York City, and a man came up to me and told me that he was a psychotherapist in a local counseling practice. He also told me that he was a Christian. And he went on to explain that when he counseled people, he never introduced the Bible into the counseling discussion because he thought it would be taking unfair advantage of someone in a vulnerable position. He said, if they say to me that they want to talk about God, I set up an appointment with them apart from our regular appointments, and there we talk about God and we talk about the Bible. Now, sadly, this is the approach to counseling that many counselors who call themselves Christians take. In fact, this kind of counseling advice may be found in many Christian books and self-help materials on the subject of depression. This approach, however, is unbiblical because it relegates God to a subordinate position. It's telling you can solve your problem with God or without God. You don't really need God. He's an unimportant part. But you have to realize that God is the solution to the depression. God is not merely an add-on. And it's not that more important techniques and therapies can solve the problem. God is the key to overcoming depression. And this is true for two reasons. One, because our spiritual condition is of primary importance in our lives. And two, because of who God is. He's our maker and he's our Lord. 
Now, if you look at Psalm 42 and 43, you note that even though the psalmist was experiencing a time of depression, he was still determined to keep his focus on God. He said, Oh, my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of Jordan. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, vindicate me, O God, for you are the God of my strength. I wrote a book some time ago, Jerry Bridges' book, uh, on trusting God even when life hurts, is a, a marvelous book. I wrote a book recently, it's called It's Not Fair. And uh, how people often get depressed because they think that what's happening to them is not fair. It's just not fair that I should be treated in this way. And uh, that book, It's Not Fair, deals with how God is vitally involved in really dealing with our problems. That's one thing you find in Psalm 42. The second thing is that the psalmist had an open and honest communication with the Lord. He said, why are you in despair, O my God? He admits to God he's in despair. He admits to God that he's disturbed. He said, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? He's acknowledging that he's struggling with the thought that maybe God has forgotten him. He's honest in talking to God. He's not playing games. He says, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? He's telling the Lord, I'm mourning. And then in verse chapter 43 and verse 2, he acknowledges that he's feeling rejected by the Lord. Now the Bible clearly teaches that God desires truth at all times, even when our souls are in despair. What this means is it's foolish to think that we can fool God by pretending that we're fine when we're not, because God is all-wise and omniscient. He understands our thoughts. What this means is that it's appropriate and good for us, even in a time of depression, to be honest about what we're feeling and thinking. However, having said that, I think it's important to clarify what I mean by honesty with God. I don't believe that it's appropriate for us to lash out at God in our anger. Some Christians have encouraged people to lash out at the Lord. Just tell God how fed up you are with him. And they've justified such behavior with the statement, God is big enough to handle it. And so just pull out all the stops and let him have it. Now I believe this attitude is unbiblical because it encourages disrespect for the one who should have our utmost respect and because it encourages a sinful kind of anger. Anger that stems from discontentment and an inadequate inadequate understanding of God's character and promises. The truth is that while we should never allow ourselves to vent sinful anger against God, it is appropriate to come before God with a submissive spirit and a broken heart. And without charging or blaming God for our problems, we can certainly express to God our confusion, our discouragement, our struggles. It's never wrong to come to God with hands folded in prayer and supplication. 
It's always wrong to come to God with fists that are clenched in anger. And that brings us to the third step for overcoming depression. And that is that we must learn to talk to ourselves rather than listen to ourselves. You see, the psalm is doing this on several occasions in these psalms. He says, why? I'm going to ask you something now. Soul, why are you in despair? Why are you disquieted? He's talking to himself, not just listening to himself. What's the difference between talking to ourselves and listening to ourselves? Well, what listening to ourselves means is that we allow our minds to freely wander down any path they want to take. And by definition, listening to oneself is a passive activity where we put our minds in freewheeling and allow our minds to go any place they want to go And we constantly replay in our minds unpleasant and painful and ungodly events and thoughts. And what happens when we just listen to ourselves is that each time the hurt or ungodly thought is replayed, the memory of it becomes more intense, more painful, and destructive. What happens is that the molehills of slight quickly turn into mountains of offense. And then what happens is that eventually a depressed person becomes convinced there's no good in his life at all. And that everyone and everything is against him. On the other hand, when we practice talking to ourselves, we determine that we will consciously direct our thoughts in a particular way. We take charge of our minds and decide what we're going to think about. What happens is that after appropriately expressing our sadness and hurt to God, we follow the example of the psalmist and sit ourselves down and start to ask ourselves some hard questions. In other words, we put ourselves on the witness stand and we say, now wait a minute, why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed within you? In this passage, we see the psalmist putting himself on the witness stand and asking himself several times to give a reason for the sadness and despair that he found in his heart. And then having done that, we see the psalmist going on to talk to himself and taking charge of himself as he directs his thoughts toward God. I remember you. In other words, this man was not passively allowing his mind to think whatever it wanted to think. Rather, he was actively seeking to know the cause of his depression so that he could overcome it. This was the third part of his procedure for defeating his depression. And then he made his mind and his heart focus on biblical facts or truth and not just feelings or assumptions. When a person just listens to himself, he's inclined to focus on speculations, assumptions, emotions, and all manner of other things that are based on what is in the heart. And, of course, this is dangerous in that the Scripture says our hearts are more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. In fact, they are more deceitful than we can possibly know. And because this is true, we must not put our confidence in our hearts, Proverbs 28, 26, but rather in the truth of God's Word. What this means is we should refuse to listen to the opinions and lies of our hearts. But rather, we should do what the psalmist did and make ourselves focus on the truths of God's word. 
In the same way, we must learn to talk to ourselves about the truths that God has revealed to us in his word. We must meditate daily in the scripture so that our minds become saturated, soaked in God's truth. And when this becomes our habit, it will replace the natural tendency we all have to passively listen to the deception of our heart. The fifth step is that we must refuse to think of ourselves as being helpless. In Psalm 42, we hear the psalmist say on several occasions, Hope in God! He's talking to himself. Now come on! Hope in God! I shall again praise him. He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. He's counseling himself. He chose to believe that he was not helpless and that there was a way of escape. And so it is for us if we're God's children. According to Scripture, God never allows us to be put in a totally helpless position. Never. Regardless of our situation, we must choose to believe. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, which says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that you, having all sufficiency in everything, may have an abundance for every good deed. And 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there is a way of escape. And God will not give you more than you can bear. We need to preach to ourselves. Now, there are four lies that are found that are so powerful with many people. According to the Bible, we're never helpless victims. Never. In every situation, but when you allow yourself to think that you're a helpless victim, you've lost the battle. You're on their way down the tubes. We are never helpless victims. In every situation, we must remember that our feelings are deceptive and that they must not be believed when they run counter to the truth of God's word. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but will with the temptation also provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We always have a choice between believing the truth of God's word and believing the lies of the devil. According to Scripture, we are never in an utterly hopeless condition. Never. According to the Bible, we always have a reason to have hope in God. Now, there are four lies the devil and our feelings want us to believe about our difficulties. One is we're experiencing unique trials and difficulties. The Bible says that's not true. There hath no trial or temptation nor taking, but such as is common to man. This isn't the first time that God ever had to help somebody in this situation. Second lie is that God is not faithful and he's forgotten us. Lord, you've forgotten us. That's not true. God is faithful. A third lie is that God is testing us beyond our ability to endure it. That's not true. And I tell people when, you know, when I expose them to this truth, they say, well, I said, now you're going to have to make a choice. Either you're going to have to believe God or believe yourself. Who are you going to believe? You says you say it's more than I can bear. God says it's not. Now, who's telling the truth? And the fourth lie is that your situation is hopeless. 
There is no way of escape. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that none of these things are true. We must realize that while it's true that we can do nothing in our own strength, it's also true that God is more than capable of helping us in all things. We must recognize and believe Philippians 4.13, which says, I can do all things through Christ, who infuses his strength into me. We must realize that there may be times when we feel weak, but the truth is we are strong in Jesus Christ. To overcome depression, we must teach ourselves to move, move out in faith in his word rather than our feelings. To overcome depression, we must choose to believe that God is faithful and that he will never leave us in a totally helpless condition. And that brings us to a sixth step, is that we must learn to have a long-distance view of life. In other words, we need to learn to look beyond what's happening today and think about the good that God has promised to bring about in the future. The psalmist said, I shall again praise him because he's the help of my countenance, my God. I'm going to get through this, and I'm going to have reason to again praise him. In other words, he had learned to have a long-distance view of life. He was like Joseph, as he's described in the book of Genesis. Joseph waited for many long years from the time that his brothers sold him into slavery until the time that he became prime minister. He endured many years of trial, persecution, and rejection before God's good purpose was revealed in his life. Why was he able to do this? He was able to do this because he read the present in the light of the future rather than the future in the light of the present. And many times, because we're struggling now and having real problems, we say it's going to be forever. And so we read the future in the light of the present rather than the present in the light of God's future promises. The best is yet to come. And then there's a seventh step, which is we must learn to be patient. Whether working with someone who is experiencing depression or counseling ourselves through a time of depression, patience is the key. We must be realistic in our expectations for change. The psalmist questioned and commanded himself three times, why are you in despair? Why are you disturbed? Hope in God. We've got to patiently continue to challenge ourselves or whoever we're counseling with the truths of God's word because our minds tend to forget. Moderate or severe depression will never be overcome in a day or a week or even a month. It will usually require patient endurance through a lengthy period of time. And then finally, we need to have a commitment to reflect on a holistic view of God. And what do I mean about that? I mean, when struggling with depression, we often think about God's justice, his holiness, his righteousness, and his anger. And we forget that our God is a God of loving kindness. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God who's long-suffering and a God who forgives. 
And instead of selecting out certain attributes of God's character that may cause us to become even more discouraged, we must remind ourselves of all of God's attributes. And that's what Jerry Bridges does in Trusting God, and that's what I do in the book It's Not Fair. And I also do that in the book Down But Not Out. Well, I will stop at that point and reflect on those things. I read that uh, account of that woman that came to me. Uh, She had been uh, experiencing severe depression for 30 years. We worked with her in the areas we're talking about here, the eight things I've mentioned again and again and again. And uh, eventually the Lord really gave her help. And after counseling had uh, concluded, uh, several months after counseling, she wrote me this letter. And she said, Dear Wayne, I just had to enclose a letter to let you know how well I've been doing. Usually for the past seven Christmases, I've been terribly depressed during the holiday season. This year, however, my heart is filled with joy for what he's done for me and for who he is to me. My soul praises him. I still have some real downers occasionally, but even then it is well with my soul, and I have an assurance I've never had before. As I had my devotions the other day, I prayed that God would never let me forget the pain I've suffered and never let me become insensitive, especially to hurting people. Then it occurred to me, it was as though I was almost asking him to allow the thorn in my side to remain, lest I forget or stop growing. For how could it be humanly possible that I asked for the thorn to remain? It has been so painful to me, and I prayed so long that he take it from me. I am slowly learning, slowly learning, that his grace is sufficient no matter what. I must surely be a slow learner. I think of you and your counseling sessions with me, and I thank the Lord for you and the wisdom he gave you and the receptive heart that he gave me. My inner man is being renewed day by day. Several more friends have come to me out, who have come and sought me out for help just in the past few weeks. I feel as though God is really using me. I'm still witnessing and believing he's made me more useful through my depression, painful as it has been. May you, Carol, and your family have a blessed holiday season. And then she sent me a poem. And I'm going to close by reading this poem. I was not prepared for the winter winds that chill the bone with the desperate sense of being alone, alone except for Christ my rock, my strength, my sword, my hope, my joy, my Lord. Winter came, grace seemed to fail. I suffered snow and ice and hail. Relentless was the terrible pain. I longed for gentle warming rain. The winds cut through my very soul, and Christ alone could make me whole. But only in his time, he said, I wished and prayed that I were dead. The days went by, and then weeks, then years. At times I thought I'd drown in tears. Relentless still the pain I felt, 
yet always at his feet I knelt. My question o'er and o'er was, why? Because of love was his reply. I look back and now I see he sculpted, chiseled, molded me. And if at times I asked him why, because I love you, he'll reply. Today I have those warming rains, the ones that wash away my pains. The winds may come that chill the bone, but now I know I'm not alone. I trusted him and sought his face, and through the melted snow came grace. She had experienced depression for 30 years. And she was one of the counselees that I spent more time with than anyone else. One of the few that went on for more than a year. And I met with her patiently, kept bringing her back, getting her to memorize scripture, think upon scripture, evaluate her situation in the light of God's word. And then she writes these letters and writes these poems to me. But uh, it was the word of God, and it always is. God's word, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds as Our minds are marinated in the Word of God and we believe the Word of God. God changes our emotions and he changes our lives as well. Well, uh, brother, as I said, uh, there's a lot more in the book Down But Not Out and Out of the Blues on the same thing.